Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Corruption is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for voters all over the world. Accordingly, corruption investigations are increasing. We look at Brazil's massive Lava Jato probe and how it influences public attitudes about graft and cronyism. And where, precisely, is the center of the European Union? Don't worry, French geographers have the answer. And they know precisely where it will be, when, or if Britain leaves the Union. Locals there are already preparing their centerpiece. First up, though. In Sri Lanka today, mourning continues. On Sunday, coordinated bomb attacks tore through three luxury hotels and three Christian churches during Easter services. More than 300 people were killed. The government reacted swiftly, blocking social media sites and declaring a state of emergency. Police have already detained 40 suspects. The defense minister claimed the bombings were carried out in retaliation for last month's attacks on mosques in New Zealand. The president, Maithripala Sirisena, condemned the atrocity. Sri Lanka is no stranger to sectarian violence. Nearly three-quarters of its 22 million people are Buddhist. The rest are split between Hindu, Muslim, and Christian minorities. For nearly 27 years, militant members of the Tamil ethnicity, itself made up predominantly of Hindus, fought the Sri Lankan government. Civil war between the government and the Tigers, who are fighting for a Tamil homeland, Elam, began in 1983. Some 60,000 people on both sides have since died in the violence. The Tamils wanted to carve out an independent state. But when they were defeated in 2009, the civil war sputtered to an end. For nearly a decade, there has been a fragile peace. But Sunday's attack looks different. The country's Christians have not been the targets of past violence. And the government looks anything but united against a confusing new threat. The curfew led to the streets being empty. People are back at work now. Namini Vijedasa reports for The Economist from Colombo, the capital. The schools are closed because parents are worried to send their children to school. And children, we have a generation of children in this country who have not experienced war. So children themselves are worried. Um, there's more high security on the streets than there was before. And uh, there's a lot of grief in that there are mass funerals taking place now. They, uh, the government decided against having one big mass funeral in the areas where most of the deaths occurred. And so if you go to the church in Katuapitiya, for instance, coffins keep coming in, small services are being held, and coffins keep going out. And there are lots of people crying in those areas. The grief is immense. And in the rest of the country, uh, sadness and also fear. Right. And and what do we know about who's responsible for the attacks? We know that they're a small Muslim group um, called National Tawhid Jamaat. Um, We know that uh, they were probably working with outside help, jihadist groups outside the country, because of the level of uh, sophistication in the attacks. It is unlikely that they worked um, without international cooperation or help of some sort. It seems that the peace has been relatively fragile since the the end of the civil war. I I wonder how much this will just inflame ethnic tensions, some of which haven't really uh, even even come to the fore yet. 
Well, we had a funny sort of peace since the end of the war. For instance, South Asia, I mean, Sri Lanka became known as one of the most peaceful countries in South Asia because after the change of government also in 2015, there was a return of civil liberties. Certainly, there was no reconciliation. Tamil, the Tamil community that were affected by the war and from which the Tamil Tiger rebels rose, they kept largely to themselves. The Sinhalese kept largely to themselves and the Muslims to themselves. There was no uh, open conflict except when, you know, open tensions except when uh, Buddhist, uh, Sinhala Buddhist extremist groups attacked the, attack the Muslims. Right now, uh, because this is such an atypical attack against the Christians and because there has been restraint on the part of the Christians in how they, in they react, uh, I think uh, the situation is under control. But there's certainly a discussion to be had about this new emergence of radical Islam in the country. The, the Muslim leaders have said they need introspection now. So this is, this is something that it's a new element of the post-war situation in Sri Lanka. Whereas earlier the tensions were between Sinhalese and Tamils, now we have a situation of, you know, mirroring what is happening around the world of Muslim fundamentalism um, and, and violence, in fact, which we didn't have before this. We've been hearing that warnings of these attacks were not passed on to the Prime Minister. How could that be? Well, this is just extremely petty politics, and we didn't know that this was happening, in fact, till, till it was announced to the public yesterday by a government spokesman that um, the Prime Minister had been kept in the dark uh, regarding a security situation in this country or even intelligence warnings. That this, uh, the international intelligence agencies have informed on the 4th of April that uh, there is such an incident will take place in this country. There will be suicide, bomber, attack in various places. This hasn't been independently confirmed by the president's side, but what we have here is a coalition government that's falling apart very badly. And tensions came to a head in October last year when the president sacked the prime minister. He was reinstated by court in December, but, but clearly a relationship has broken down so much that the prime minister was not in, invited to National Security Council meetings, which he has been uh, attending since the early uh, 80s or the late 80s. So we don't really know whether if the Prime Minister had known he would have taken firmer action. We don't know to what extent the President took action on the intelligence warnings that he received. But we do know that this unpleasant breakdown of what was once called the Rainbow Coalition in this country is now affecting not just administration but national security. And it is, it is, uh, it is unacceptable, to be honest. Well, clearly, and, and if these lines of communication are so closed and so influenced by petty politics, is the government prepared? Is it, is it in a good state to deal with this kind of tragedy? They are not. They, they didn't seem to be prepared. They had knee-jerk reactions, for instance. The calling of the emergency, I suppose, was to be expected because they have to deal with whatever terrorist cells that might be in the country. But apart from that, what did they do? They, uh, they declared a national day of mourning. They said they'll pay each of the victim families a million rupees. And they also said that they'll fund the funerals. This is the, we have seen this happening even in times of national disaster. It's not, they, they, there doesn't seem to be enough um, 
acceptance of responsibility heads haven't been rolling um, finger pointing has taken place of course but that doesn't serve the purpose that the country expects of a government i mean national security is not something that this government that this country was unfamiliar with we had a 27 year old war but there has been a complete breakdown clearly collected uh, connected to national petty politics and uh, there's not enough uh, you know not enough self examination or punishment or even any assurance that it will not occur again in future at the moment for the public nominee thank you very much for your time you're welcome hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Five years ago, Brazil launched the Lava Jato probe. It would become the biggest anti-corruption investigation in Latin American history. Its consequences have been far-reaching. Just last week, Peru's ex-president Alan Garcia shot himself dead amid allegations of corruption stemming from Lava Jato. Corruption, of course, is nothing new. According to the NGO Transparency International, countries with bad scores on perceived corruption far outnumber those with good scores. and public anger over graft is intensifying. If you compare the headlines that we're seeing today to the headlines that we were seeing 15 years ago and you compare the number of those headlines that have to do with corruption, it's very striking. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. He's written extensively about corruption for the Economist. There seems to have been a dramatic increase in the salience of corruption as a political issue all over the world. If you think about the 1MDB case in Malaysia, if you think about Ukrainian oligarchs, if you think about accusations that Donald Trump has broken constitutional protections against corruption or Bibi Netanyahu who's currently fighting for his political life over corruption allegations, it just seems as though corruption has become a much more important issue around the world. That doesn't mean that there's more corruption going on now than there was 15 years ago, but people seem to be noticing it more. But while the rot is being exposed, it's not quite so easy to clean up. One of the controversies about how you root out corruption is can you really get rid of corruption by throwing people in jail? Because in countries where you have pervasive corruption, usually the entire political class is in on the take in one way or another. And if you look at recent examples of countries that have tried to stop corruption, the Italian example in the 1990s was a very important one. There was a widespread effort by the Italian judiciary to break the control of the mafia over much of the country and to eliminate corruption in governance. They threw large numbers of people in jail, but ultimately the results were quite mixed and the consensus is that the Italian political system is still fairly corrupt. What can make a difference is outside help. 
in Romania, there was a very successful anti-corruption office that was established in the late 2000s, partly as a part of their effort to join the European Union. It was run by a very effective prosecutor for about five years. She convicted thousands of people, put hundreds of people in jail, including a sitting prime minister who she got a conviction against, and the support of the EU was extremely important. It's extremely helpful to have some sort of outside institution, outside of the country that's trying to fight corruption, which can ground the organization that's trying to get rid of corruption in that country. The risk is, of course, that the domestic political class, if it decides that it's not in its interests to continue prosecuting corruption, can kick that outside power system out. Romania remains a very corrupt country. And in the end, the prosecutor, Laura Kodrutsikoveshi, ruffled too many feathers. Ultimately, last year, she was forced out of her position by the government because her efforts were inconvenient to the ruling party. In Brazil, corruption has long been endemic. Once upon a time, a culture of impunity ruled. But since 2015, the Lava Jato investigation has been challenging systemic graft. It's also a case study in how getting rid of corruption is far from straightforward. In a short time, Lava Jato has become a sprawling anti-graft operation involving private companies, state-owned firms, and most of Brazil's major political parties. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent. It has led to hundreds of arrests and convictions, billions of dollars in fines, and has discredited nearly the entire political class here in Brazil. One president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, is in jail for more than a decade. Another, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached during the fallout. And a third, Mikhail Temer, was just arrested. It has really awakened this sense of anger at the systemic corruption that has totally infected Brazilian politics for most of its history. Brazilians have taken to the streets in millions over the past few years. And last year, this anger helped unseat scores of congressmen and push the far-right populist politician Jair Bolsonaro to the presidency. The investigation has also spread to elsewhere in Latin America where some of Brazil's corrupt companies had business dealings. There have been hundreds of arrests and billions of dollars in fines there as well. And so do you get a sense from people that they, they think corruption is finally being rooted out? So here's the paradox. While Brazil is doing more to address corruption than ever before in its history, there are also studies like those by Transparency International that show Brazilians perceive greater levels of corruption now than before. That's not just because of the media's totally incessant Lava Jato coverage. Olá, seja muito bem-vindo ao Globo News Painel, que hoje vai tratar da Operação Lava Jato, do combate à corrupção. Operação Lava Jato atingiu essa semana o ex-presidente Lula. Essa tarefa da Lava Jato prendeu agora de manhã em São Paulo o ex-presidente Michel. But also because of the sense that, at least in the political system, very little is being done to address this rot. Well, tell me about the rot. I mean, why is corruption so widespread in Brazil's politics? So it's really tough to offer a single explanation for corruption, especially when it's been around for so long, like here in Brazil. One factor that has definitely exacerbated it in recent years is the explosion in the number of political parties. Brazil has gone from half a dozen when it returned to democracy in the 80s to more than 30 different parties in Congress now. 
This makes elections extremely expensive. The parties, which for the most part are pretty ideologically vacant, tend to kind of band together in complex and ever-changing coalitions, both during the campaigns and once government is in session. These coalitions often depend on pork and patronage and, you know, as Lava Jato showed us, millions and billions of dollars in bribes. So given these kinds of deep-rooted structural problems, how can Lava Jato bring about real change, lasting change? The one area where Lava Jato still has a long way to go is in cases against sitting politicians. They have this thing called foro privilegiado, which is a special legal protection that means they can only be investigated and tried by the Supreme Court. That is crucial because of nearly 200 investigations since 2015 against politicians implicated in Lava Jato, the Supreme Court has already archived or dismissed 30% and has ruled on only six of those six, just two politicians were convicted. So for the most part, the politicians who have these massive corruption cases against them that have been aired in the media are still in Congress. Some of them were voted out, but you know some of the worst offenders are still making laws. So what needs to happen to keep Lava Jato on track? Two things. First of all, Brazilians really need to see convictions of more politicians. Second of all, Brazil needs to pass more laws and reforms that would reduce the incentive for graft in the first place. If this new crop of politicians that is coming into Congress now is serious about stemming corruption, it could, for example, introduce more reforms to make elections less expensive and government more representative. It could also eliminate foro privilegiado. So how likely do you think it is that Brazil can accomplish these things? One reason to be optimistic is the strong message from voters that they're sick of politicians who promote corruption and the presence for the first time of a president who has made fighting corruption really top of his agenda. That said, the politicians may prove unwilling to give up their special protections. Even one of Mr. Bolsonaro's sons, Flavio, a senator from Rio, tried to claim foro privilegiado when he was being looked into for suspicious bank transactions. So at the end of the day, it is kind of a paradox that the future of Brazil's anti-corruption efforts really does depend on politicians who in theory are supposed to act in the public interest, but in practice often have more of an interest in protecting themselves. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jason. Tom Nuttall is our Berlin bureau chief. He's just back from a weekend trip to the very heart of Europe. So I went down to this tiny hamlet in southern Germany called Gadheim. And the village itself, there's very little going on there. The last count, there were 89 people living in Gadheim. There's a handful of farmers, but they're all part-time. There's a chapel, 
couple of bus stops, and that's pretty much it. So why did you go to Gadheim? So every time the composition of the European Union changes, there's a French geographical institute that has a particular technique for calculating the new geographical centre of the European Union. After the Brexit vote, which marked the first time a country leaves the EU, the institute recalculated the centre and placed it in this tiny village called Gadheim. This was about two years ago. Now that there's so much uncertainty around the Brexit process. Nobody knows when Britain is going to leave. Some people don't even know if Britain is going to leave. I thought I'd go down and find out how the Gadheimers were feeling about it. So when the good people of Gadheim found out they were about to be the the geographic centre of Europe, what did they do? Well, the first thing that happened really was the world's media descended on this village, although um, some of them got confused with a very similarly named village 45 kilometres away called Gerdheim. It's A with an umlaut. So, you know, easy mistake to make if you're not German. But there was nothing to see. So they decided, well, we need to do something for all of these journalists who are coming. So the farmer who owned the land that the precise centre was calculated to be on, a woman called Karin um, Kessler. I grow wheat and... Rapeseed, sugar She beans, was given a bit of money by the local barley, municipality. They created an area, they gave it the grand name of an EU centre. It doesn't feel like much of a centre when you're there. There's a rock that uh, is on the precise point, the precise uh, coordinates calculated by the French Institute. We have the table on the bank, uh, flagpoles, and uh, we have uh, some plants and a big stone with um, an arrow. This has um, sort of metaphorically been fired from Westengrund, the current centre, to, as it were, mark the geographical changing of the guard. Although everyone I spoke to in Gadheim thought it was a bit silly. Right. I mean, uh, notwithstanding the silliness, are they are they sort of excited to to to, to become a geographically important region? So th- there's a distinct ambivalence there. Of course, I mean, th- this place in the middle of nowhere, all of a sudden becoming the centre of, of a, a flurry of media attention, is is I- exciting and fun. One of the women I met made an amusing YouTube video directed against you know, the, the British bankers who are now going to be obliged to leave London and come to Gadheim and reassuring them that there's lots of space and no traffic. Air pollution. We have one traffic light, a really beautiful traffic light. You should come and see it. Which but really, the ambivalence comes from the fact that the people down there, like most Germans, are solidly pro-European. They don't like Brexit. They don't understand it. They're unhappy about a country like Britain choosing to leave. And so they're not particularly cherishing the prospect of a big party to celebrate the arrival of the EU centre in their village because they're unhappy about the event that has triggered it. One woman I spoke to, Gunilla Weidner, who made the video that I mentioned earlier, as she put it to me, Gadheim doesn't need its place in the history books. It needs a well-functioning European Union. Um, We know Gadheim's fame (laughs) depends on, on the Brexit, but we would all... Um, be happier if it wouldn't happen. To me, the European Union is there to protect freedom for, for Europe. To me, it's to protect basic principles, human rights, democracy, um, equality of, of people, um, freedom, and also the wealth of the EU citizens. Tom, thanks for speaking to the good people of Gadheim for us. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 
And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.